Welcome to History of the Sports Bra. Hello, hello, and welcome to History of the Sports Bra. I am one of your hosts, Sophie Segretti. And I'm the other host, Julia Hostetter. And today we're going to talk about gymnastics. So going way, way back, gymnastics goes all the way back to ancient Greece and Sparta, where it was originally used as an exercise to train for war. By the end of the 19th century, men's gymnastics was popular enough to be in the first Olympics, the first modern Olympic Games wow. in 1896. Yeah. So it's been, it's like an OG. Gymnastics is one of those OG sports. Okay. And in 1914, so women's athletic competitions were like officially opposed by the American Olympic Committee, except the only thing we could do was the floor exercise because women could wear long skirts. What, cover it up? I hate that. But, you know, not surprising given the year and whatever still doesn't make Mm -hmm. it right. But at least I guess floor exercise, you got to start somewhere. You got to start somewhere. So moving a little bit ahead to the what we're going to call the slightly, slightly modern era. In 1928, this was the first Women's Olympics officially, but it only included what they called synchronized calisthenics and track and field. So what the hell is that? Believe you me, strange, strange word. This synchronized calisthenics became what we know as like the team oh, okay. all around okay. in future gymnastics. And so up until 1952, the only gymnastic event in the Olympics was this team all around. So for the women, for the women, yeah, teams would compete on the rings. So this is the only time that women were actually on the rings in the Olympics, vault, beam, and then two quote unquote group exercises. So no female gymnasts won individual medals in the Olympics. They only won team. Yeah, exactly. Now we're in the modern era, and so things changed in the 50s. Then at the 1952 Olympics, this was the first Olympics in which women were allowed to compete as individuals in the four apparatus, apparati, (laughs) and these are the ones that we know and love today. Vault, uneven bars, beam, floor, and then also the individual all around. So this is like the first real modern artistic gymnastics Olympics for women. The ones that we know, like the, the ones one that, that we, we love, know. that we fall in love with, like, with the Fab Five. and Exactly. When yep. you picture oh. gymnastics, that's what you're picturing. Okay. Which is shockingly called artistic gymnastics. Do, don't they have the other type of, what's the other kind of the gymnastics? The other kind is rhythmic gymnastics, okay. which is just a women's sport. And it's like a little bit of ballet, gymnastics, dance. And it has some more apparatus, but they're like a ball, a ribbon, a hoop, a rope. Then there's trampolining. Then there's acrobatic gymnastics. But when you say like artistic gymnastics, we're talking vault, uneven bars, beam, okay. floor, I Simone know Biles. rhythmic gymnastics, which this is, I don't know why I know this, but Katie Nolan, wish I could call her a longtime friend, but I love her <laughs> podcast sports, sports question mark with Katie Nolan. She yeah. did rhythmic gymnastics. She was talking about that the other day on the I Just Women's like Sports podcast. Too. Boom. Oh, she, she was on yeah, Just Women's Sports? She interviewed Kelly O'Hara. So, oh. Yo, she was talking about it. I'll have to catch that then. up. But it's cool that they got so many event, other events, you know. But yeah. artistic gymnastics, obviously, is kind of where our, our attention goes. Yeah. But there's other stuff out there, too. Mm-hmm. 
So now 1952 Olympics, the Soviet Union dominates gymnastics in the 1952 Olympics. Maria Gorokovskaya, Amazing. so a gymnast. Good job. Yeah. Thank you so much. I don't know how I did you that. I'm reading it. I would not have come up with that, but <laughs> that's awesome. A gymnast from the Soviet Union won seven medals in the 52 games, two gold, five silver, which is still the most medals won by any woman in a single Olympics across all sports. Wow. Maria retired after the 1954 World Champs and has worked as and worked as a judge and gymnastics coach and she was inducted into the International Jewish Sports Hall of Fame in 1991. Which well, good for her for the first Olympics too to come out and and dominate. That's Yeah. Damn. Feather in her cap. Yeah. Then at the 1956 Melbourne Olympics, we meet Larissa Latyanina of Ukraine, who is widely considered the greatest female gymnast of all time, asterisk, asterisk, in parentheses, Simone, question mark. So this is going to be the classic Michael Jordan v. Kobe, Michael Jordan v. LeBron James, like kind of two different eras. And it's hard with the eras. Yeah, like Bill Russell, you know. Yeah, I get it. Right. It's hard with the eras because it's completely different. But and usually the recent went out, but we'll see. Yeah. So in the 56 Olympics, she got gold in the all-around, three gold medals, a silver medal, and a bronze medal. And between 1956 and 1964, she won 14 individual Olympic medals and four team medals. She holds a record for the most Olympic gold medals by any gymnast, male or female. She has nine gold medals. And she is the only woman ever to have won nine medals in a sport. Wow. Yeah. So like when you Google like, you know, we all know Michael Phelps has the record for the most gold medals for anybody, but then it's like somebody else and then it's her. Oh, I talked so about She's this. like way up. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's literally the next paragraph, folks. It is. So her total medal count of 18 was a record for 48 years. And she held the record for individual events at 14 for 52 years. She is the only female athlete to ever have these records who beat these medal counts. So Michael Phelps, he has 28 Olympic medals. She's second with 18. And then third, there are two people tied for 15. One's a cross-country skier and one is another male is a male gymnast. So like she is studded. She's with decorated. Goals. She's oh my decorated. Gosh. But now let's address the goat in the room, Simone Biles. So <laughs> Simone has only been to two Olympics. So I'm going to talk more about her later. But like, if you're confused as to how Simone, who is also widely recognized as the greatest of all time of gymnastics, hasn't beaten Larissa in these stats, it's only because she's only been to two Olympics. And I believe Larissa has gone to three. So Yeah, and that's just, I think the the physical demand maybe perhaps right you know in this because that's just the natural tendency of sports is that over time they become more and more physically demanding as more and more people get yep. into it blah 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 mm -hmm. but what a base for the olympics to start yeah. off of oh holy mo yeah holy moly well okay it doesn't stop at the 1958 world champions larissa wins five out of six titles even though she's four months <laughs> pregnant. Oh my God. <laughs> it's amazing. I'm only like learning about this now. Like this is my Dude, first. I know. Larissa's a queen. I was like shit. Larissa. And so then in 1960, after having her kid, she wins three gold medals, two silver medals, and a bronze medal at the Rome Olympics. Wow. 
And these are just kind of more of her like accolades. She's the only woman who's won an all-around medal in more than two Olympics. So she's had three, not all gold, but she still got it. Uh, the only women woman to have won an individual event in more than two Olympics. She Okay, I just looked at a picture of her. She's so cute. Oh, I should I look her up. Her. I'll throw it on the website. Well, she's in the Kremlin in 2010. I guess, you know, Soviet yeah. Union, but still. Right. And she's one of only three other women who have won every individual event at either the Olympics or the World Championship. Oh, my God. I know. What, like, exclusive company to be a part of? Yeah. She retired after the 66 World Champs and became a coach for the Soviet Union's gymnastic team, leading them to gold in the 68, 72, and 76 Olympics. So so she was even able to teach it. She could yeah. not only do it, but then go ahead, turn around, and teach that. Right. Now we're going to talk a little bit about the 1970s. But one thing I want to know is that like the earliest champions in women's gymnastics were in their 20s. And most of them were ballerinas first and then gymnasts. Larissa won her first medal at 22 and then her second at 26. And Vera Koslavsky, who was Larissa's main rival and was an all-around champ three times in the Olympics and once in the world. And I think Vera is the person who won two golds back to back. So Vera was 22 when she won her first gold. But Simone at 26 is being called a grandma. So the fact that most of these, to your point, Julia, that one of the reasons Larissa was so dominant is that they started later. Like today, starting your like gymnastic career. Yeah, like, like 16 or whatever. What'd you say? Yeah. 15 was the age? Mm-hmm. Was the youngest. Like most most gymnasts are like 15 or 16 in the Olympics. And then they own, and then if they compete in two, it's like, wow, look at them go. Because that's mm-hmm. just how the, the window in terms yeah. of, I guess, your body being fit to compete at the mm-hmm. level that is at right now is just so yeah. small. Yeah. In the 70s, there was this thought that I think has prevailed somewhat today that smaller, lighter girls generally did better in some of those like challenging acrobatic elements. Yeah, you know? right. So like the Russian gymnast Olga Corbo and the Romanian gymnast Nadia Kamansai were 17 and 14 when they won gold medals. So I think after these, I'm sure after these teenagers won gold medals too, it kind of clicked for everybody. Like, oh, okay. Like you don't have to be a certain age old, you know, to to compete. You can now, the younger probably will win out. Yeah. I'm going to do a couple quick facts on these two gymnasts because they're some of the most famous gymnasts of all time. So Olga was the first female gymnast to do a backflip off the high bar, and she was the first to do a back tuck on the beam. She was the first female gymnast to be named to the International Gymnastics Hall of Fame. Then Nadia scored the first ever perfect 10 <laughs> in Olympic history at 14 in the 76 Olympics. And at that same Olympics, she received six more perfect tens and went on to win three gold medals. And think of how rare a perfect ten is. Yeah. And we know every even if you're, you know, just again a casual fan, you know that a perfect ten is so rare. So she probably killed that. Yeah. Also, Nadia is one of the world's best known gymnasts and is credited with popularizing the sport around the globe. <laughs> Then in the 80s, the International Gymnastics Federation, the FIG, 
raised the minimum age for international competition from 14 to 15, but it didn't really address the problem that these gymnasts were starting training so young. And that's dangerous too, right? When, you're bo- when your body's not kind of fully grown to be throwing exactly. these things. When stuff goes wrong, it goes really wrong really quickly just because yeah. your body's not ready. So mm-hmm. happy, I'm assuming that that's what the, the age is based off of. So yeah, makes sense. So then in 97, they raised it again to 16. The average elite female gymnast is still in her mid to late teens with below average height and weight. We now see more and more gymnasts competing into their 20s. And in fact, at the 2008 Olympics, the silver medalist on the vault, Oksana Chufskovina, was a 33-year-old mother. And she won another silver at the 2011 World Champs when she was 36. She she is also a machine because... Even though she didn't win anything, she competed in the 2016 Olympics at Rio at 41, which is her seventh consecutive Olympics, which is a world record for a female gymnast. Wow. And in 2019, she qualified for her eighth consecutive Olympics at 44, which is insane. And actually, let me see. She did it. She, I was. I just Googled it. So she did yeah. 46-year-old competes in final vault of Olympic career. So oh, she got a, my God. She said record-setting, I think, eighth Olympic appearance for gymnastics. At 46. At 46. That might be an overall record. There are girls there who are like a third of her age. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Uzbekistan. She competes for, she she represents Uzbekistan. Wow. Wow. Good for her. Good for Oksana. She must have been really healthy for really long, you know, like kept her body in great condition. Oh, yeah. I mean, my back hurts. I'm 20, what, five, (laughs) 24? I don't even know how old I'm, but 24. Understandably so. Oksana was inducted into the International Gymnastics Hall of Fame in 1998. So now we're going to take a pivot to U.S. gymnastics, our faves, the team we love to support. So the U.S. team has become increasingly successful in the modern era. Eastern European gymnasts really dominated women's gymnastics early on. In 1970, Kathy Rigby was the first American to become a world medalist when she won silver in the beam. And then Marcia Frederick became the first American woman world champion, winning gold in the bars in 78. And then we get to Mary Lou Retton, who in 1984 became the first American to win the Olympic all-around. She was trailing the Romanian gymnast Ekaterina Zabo after the uneven bars and the balance beam. But then with two events to go, Mary Lou scored perfect tens on both the floor and the vault and beat Zabo. This was also the first female gymnast from outside Eastern Europe to win the individual all around. In 84. Okay. In 84. She also won silver in like the team all around and vault and then bronze in floor and uneven bars. And she was named Sports Illustrated Sports Woman of the Year, appeared on a Wheaties box and became the serial's first official spokeswoman. Wow. I mean, yeah. what a cool, because that's always something, you know, you get yourself on the Wheaties box, I feel like, as yeah. an athlete. And to be the first, you know, spokeswoman is such an accomplishment. I know it's not, right. you know, the same as probably winning gold medal, but it's a really <laughs> close cool second. thing. It's a close second. Yep. But the U.S. women's team really took off in the 1996 Atlanta Olympics, which apparently, like all women's sports, because that was also the Olympics where like soccer Yep. Women's soccer exploded with the victory of what they called the Magnificent Seven. 
The Magnificent Seven was the U.S. women's gymnastics team that won the first ever gold medal for the U.S. in the team competition. We had Shannon Miller, Dominique Monceau, Dominique Dawes, so two Dominiques, Carrie Strug, Amy Chow, Amanda Borden, and J.C. Phillips or Phelps. So here's my favorite gymnastics story of all time. So the way that the all-around worked in the 1996 Olympics was that every gymnast competed in every event and the top five of seven were kept. So like today, I believe they only have two gymnasts from each country compete on every event. So for the vault, each gymnast would perform two vaults and then only the highest of those two scores were kept. So all seven ladies would do the vault twice. They'd keep the highest two scores. So vault was the U.S.'s last event, and Russia was currently in the lead, and Russia's last event was floor. So in theory, Russia could score as high as a 10 on the floor while the U.S. was competing in vault. So assuming that the Russia scored a 10, the U.S. would need at least a 9.43 to ensure gold in the all-around. So everybody on the team does their two vaults. We have Monceau and Strug going last. So Monceau does her second vault and scores 9.2, which wasn't the 9.43 we needed. And Carrie Strug goes next as the anchor. She has both of her vaults to do. And her first vault injures her ankle in the landing. And because we didn't know how Russia was scoring on the floor and we didn't get that 9.43 to get gold, Bella Caroli, the coach, encouraged Carrie to try again and started a chant, you can do it, Carrie, you can do it, Carrie. So the whole stand is screaming this. So Carrie pulls herself together, gets her ankle taped like a thousand times and goes up for her second fault. She runs, she hits the vault, pulls off her crazy trick, some type of <laughs> twisty flip thing. And she sticks the landing, but then immediately pulls up that injured ankle. So she's hopping on one foot as she does that little like arms raise bow thing yeah. that gymnasts do. And then she immediately crumples to the floor and is unable to move. And like the coaches carry her off the mat and she's like crying in pain in her coach's arms, unable to stand when it's revealed that she scored a 9.712, way higher than they needed to score the gold. And the crowd is losing it because the U.S. wins the gold. And Carrie is literally carried by the coach as they play the na national anthem. And the team makes its way to the podium. And like her foot is in some type of like little boot. And when the coach like pushes her on the podium, the crowd loses it. I'll put the video on the website because this is one of those. You have to watch this video. This is one of those moments in sports history that is so, so incredible. It like hits you in your chest. It's just an excellent example of the grit and determination that athletes have at this elite level. And again, for like US specifically, it's kind of one of those iconic moments that like obviously I was like a babe or I wasn't even born right. yet when this was, but I know of this. Like this is something that they show on the commercials for the advertisement. Yeah. And to be able to power through pain like that is incredible. And to all into the six other women on this team, I mean, to think of what they did and who they inspired. Yeah. I know like Doming Dawes. They called her Awesome Dawesome, which is A, <laughs> a great nickname. Okay. Right. Like that is yeah. probably in the GOAT Hall of Fame for me in nicknames. She was the first black person of any nationality or gender to win an Olympic gold medal in gymnastics. Wow. So that's like Yeah. It, you again you have to start somewhere and to to inspire mm -hmm. people for the next generation. I'm sure that all these women did that. 
Yeah. Which is great. And that really started like our dominance in gymnastics. The U.S. has produced the last five women's Olympic all-around champions. We had Carly Patterson in 2004, Nastia Lukin in 2008, Gabby Douglas in 2012, and then Simone Biles in 2016, and Suni Lee in 2021. And U.S. won the team gold in 2012 and 2016. And in 2012 was like the fierce five. So that was Ali Raisman, Gabby Douglas, Michaela Maroney, Kyla Ross, and Jordan Weber. And Ali was captain. And so that team, the Fierce Five, was featured on the cover of Sports Illustrated's Olympic Preview. And it was the first time since 1996 that a gymnast had appeared on the cover. Wow. Yeah. And also in that Olympics, Ali Raisman won bronze on balance beam and gold on floor. And in the individual all around, she was tied with Russian gymnast Aliyah Mustafina for oh, I third. I this. Yep. And in the tiebreaker, they gave Mustafina the bronze medal and Raisman didn't score. So then in 2016, we had the final five. And it was called the final five because going forward, the teams would only have like four members, four like core members. Um, and that was Simone Biles, Gabby Douglas, Lori Hernandez, Madison Koshin, and Allie Raisman. And Allie was the cap- the captain again. They won gold in the individual or in the team all around. Simone won gold in the individual all around and the vault and the floor and then bronze on balance beam. Madison ended up winning a silver in the uneven bars and Lori won a silver on the beam and Allie won a silver in floor and then a silver in the individual all around. And I have talked about this moment before, but this is another one of my favorite sports moments. And so I've got to run it back. So in the individual all around, Allie Raisman has been like dreaming of winning this forever, especially after she like just missed meddling in the 2012 Olympics. She was like heartbroken and she ends up taking a year off of gymnastics after the 2012 Olympics. And she knew she was going to be 22 in the 2016 Olympics, which was considered old. So there was like a lot of doubt and negativity going into the Rio Olympics. And few expected her to qualify for the all-around. And she had never won an individual all-around medal before. And some people didn't even think that she was going to make the Rio Olympic team. So Allie barely sneaks by Gabby Douglas to qualify for the second spot in the U.S. to compete in the individual all-around. And apparently going in, she always knew Simone was going to win because like, as we've said before, Simone Biles. And so Allie's quoted as just saying that like the two of them aren't competitive with each other. They're just like super supportive. So Allie is like shooting for like silver or bronze. So she does her vault and the uneven bars and like both are good routines. She then does B. And even though it was like good and like crisp, she didn't perform the way she usually does and was like down in some points. So now she's going into her final event floor where she is the reigning champ and she is ranked behind Simone and very close to Aaliyah Mustafina, the gymnast who you'll remember won bronze over Ali in 2012. So Ali knew she had to just like crush this floor routine to beat Mustafina for silver. And if you watch this floor routine, it is incredible. She sticks every tumbling pass and all of her skills are on point. And in her last little tumbling pass, as soon as she sticks to the landing, she is so overcome with emotion that she starts crying. And it's like just pure joy and pride. And like, again, the representation of of how beautiful sports can be. And you just know 
that she knows in that moment that you know she has she done herself proud shit. yeah like she knows she killed that shit and that like all of the struggle was worth it because she had done enough to win silver and so minutes later the score confirms that she beat mustafina and won silver and it was just an amazing olympic moment especially because that's like what they ended it on right so yeah the last yeah. event and of the last for this Olympics and for, you know, someone who's worked so hard to go out and, and execute and do what they need to do and achieve their goals is always amazing to witness or to be a Mm -hmm. part of. Now we have to do a little Simone Biles appreciation moment because she needs her own little section. So Simone is the most decorated American gymnast ever with 30 combined Olympic and world championship medals. She's the world's third most decorated behind Belarus's Vidaly Sherbo, who had 33, and then Larissa Latinia, who we've spoken about before, who has 32. And like, as we've seen, most elite gymnasts only compete for two to five years and Biles has been doing it for almost a decade. Simone is also the gymnast with the most world championship medals, 25, and the most world gold medals, 19. So she's like widely considered to be one of the greatest and most dominant gymnasts of all time. She's also so uniquely talented that she comes up with skills that are so difficult and demanding that they're named after her because nobody else can do them. And they're called eponymous skills. I had to put a little pronunciation guide in there for myself. (laughs) (laughs) So these eponymous skills are the most difficult elements on every apparatus. And as of 2019, she was the only gymnast to have performed any of them in competition. And then in May, she became the first woman to compete complete a Yurchenko double pike on the vault during competition. No other woman has even attempted this vault. It is so difficult. This vault is now being called the Biles. Then on the balance beam, we also have the Biles. And on the floor, we have the Biles and the Biles too. <laughs> well, it's cool because you know, you know, you rarely see stuff being named after someone in real time, right? It's always going exactly. back to someone else. So she is, again, just continuing to raise that bar and mm-hmm. say, you can, I can do this. So someone down the line is probably going to be able to do it, even if it's something untouchable like the Yurchenko double pike. Exactly. Eventually, you know, Simone came along and was like, you know, oh, I'm going to do this. She's doing yeah. it. It's awesome. And like Julia said, she's been dominating gymnastics for eight years and she seems to be hitting her peak at the US Champs. She won three of the four events that she competed in. And in Rio, she won four of a possible six gold medals, only losing on bars and beam. As a warning, in this next section, we talk about sexual abuse and assault. (sighs) Okay, so that was all the fun stuff. Now, unfortunately, we have to turn a bit to 
the drama and the heavy and the sadness of gymnastics. And this is something too that I would recommend personally, just for your own knowledge. I mean, what we're going to give you is going to be a good synopsis, but right, it's important for you to go and, and see what happens just so we can hopefully fix yeah. moving yeah. forward. So we already kind of talked about how like the mean age of female gymnasts kept getting lower and lower and how, you know, the FIG tried to raise the minimum age of those who could compete, but women's gymnastics still has the youngest mean age of all disciplines in the Olympics. And so girls begin competing and training at like six, seven, and eight, and like abuse is not rare. Unfortunately, gymnastics is known for its brutal coaching methods. And just like think about how young these girls are. There were a lot of reports that came out about Crowley Ranch, which is where the U.S. gymnastics team used to have training retreats. This run by Bella and Maria Crowley from gymnasts like Simone Biles that the gymnasts were literally starved while they were there and would have to break into the kitchen to get food. And these are children and youth athletes and they're obviously much more vulnerable to abuse than their adult peers and you know when a coach isn't an authority figure it's just like a it's a perfect storm for abuse and they're also taking away like they're they're training 16 hours a day so it's not like they go home right? right so they're just living there they're breathing there they're essentially working there yeah so it's hard for them to even at that age reach out to any other sort of figure adult figure yeah it's like a very strange and isolating environment. And like your coach is kind of the only adult in the room, but they're also the only person who's like responsible for whether you get put on a team or not. So obviously- You want to make them happy in whatever way. Conflict of interest. Yep. Yeah. So then of course, there was the Larry Nasser sex abuse scandal and the USA Gymnastics sex abuse scandal. So- This just involves the sexual abuse of female athletes who are primarily minors over two decades starting in the 1990s. And there were over 368 people who alleged that they were sexually assaulted by gym owners, coaches, and staff working for gymnastics programs across the country. And, you know, the worst of all of this is, of course, Larry Nasser, who was the USA Gymnastics team doctor. And he has been named in hundreds of lawsuits filed by athletes who say that he engaged in sexual abuse for at least 14 years under the pretense of providing medical treatment. More than 265 women have come forward, including all the stars we know, Michaela Maroney, Ali Raisman, Gabby Douglas, Simone Biles, Jordan Weber, Madison Koshin, and many more accused Nasser of sexually assaulting them. And this is one of the largest sex abuse scandals in sports history. He was sentenced to 60 years in prison on federal child pornography charges and an additional 40 to 175 years and 40 to 125 years all to be served sequentially, so like at least 140 years in prison on first-degree sexual assault. And what is so horrifying about this case is that the investigation by the Annapolis Star found that the abuses, not just Nassar's, were widespread because these predatory coaches were allowed to move from gym to gym after... Like after they were accused, yeah. And that's similar to... I think I watched a documentary called, I don't know if you mentioned it, Athlete A on Netflix. Oh, yes, yes. um, Talks about this, but it's also akin to Spotlight and Uh the Catholic priest just, you know, if something comes up, well, let's move them to the next one, new town, nobody knows who it is. Nobody's talking, right? So mm-hmm. they're able to hide under that guise. So it's not only Larry Nasser, you know, it's like no. all these other people are complicit. 
you know, Larry Nassar exactly. is the one who committed it, but all these other people were complicit mm-hmm. in it. So so USA Gymnastics and Michigan State University, both places where Larry Nassar worked, have been accused of enabling his abuse. And there was a book written by ESPN reporters John Barr and Dan Murphy called Start Believing or Start by Believing Larry Nassar's Crimes, the Institutions that Enabled Him and the Brave Woman Who Stopped a Monster. So I haven't read the book yet, but I read some interviews with the authors and Lindsay Gibbs in Lindsay Gibbs's Power Plays newsletter. And it's just crazy. They expose the extent to which that people at Michigan and USA Gymnastics went to cover up his crimes. There were emails in like 2015 when USA Gymnastics first started investigating his crimes, but he continued to work until 2017. Again, just abusing more and more people. It's just disgusting. There's like a coach they talk about who he himself is accused of verbal and physical abuse and is still under investigation, but he allegedly knew about Nasser's abuse in 1998. And then there are all these other horrible facts that came out that Michigan State University initially only wanted to settle with survivors for $20 million, And in 2018, they ended up send- settling for $500 million, which is still not enough. Obviously. And that's $20 million across all of the survivors, which are a ton. And one of the quotes from the book that they talk about is, quote, well-connected club coaches become power brokers, gatekeepers who decide which gymnasts get time and opportunities to keep climbing, unquote. And this just kind of talks to the fact of like the crazy amount of control coaches have over gymnasts and how they control who succeeds and how that contributes to this culture of abuse. It's like a crazy power dynamic where parents gymnasts, family, friends, like nobody wants to speak up and ruin somebody's chances of going up a level to a coach who holds that power. They're judge, jury, and executioner in a weird way in this this whole thing. Exactly. The book also talks about how Steve Penny, who was CEO of USA Gymnastics, was a bully who was like particularly awful to women. And January 2020, USA Gymnastics offered $21 million in a settlement to more than 300 plaintiffs who sued USA Gymnastics for failing to protect them from Nasser's abuse. And the lawyer who represents about like 200 of those 300 plaintiffs told the New York Times that that offer is unconscionable because each survivor would only get $300,000. Whereas in the Michigan State settlement, each plaintiff got like $1.25 million. And like these victims will need a lifetime of therapy to even begin to address the hundreds and hundreds of instances of abuse. And so $300,000 does not go far. No. And the settlement plan doesn't include any of the specific reforms that the victims have asked for. Also, a former doctor with the U.S. Olympic Committee was fired because he reported sexual abuse complaints. So in 2012, Dr. Bill Murrow recommended that Nasser stop treating young female patients alone because of suspected abuse. And in 2018 and 2019, he raised concerns about a series of sexual abuse and mental health injustices to the U.S. Olympic Committee, and he was fired. I mean, oh there my are God. hundreds of gymnasts who would have never met Nasser, if the U.S. Olympic Committee had fired him in 2012. And this just kind of highlights, too, that um, there needs to be protection for people who come forward, right? And I think that's something that, like, in a normal workforce, there is that level of protection, but Uh I don't necessarily know how it works in, you know, gymnastics. And it's disgusting that, you know, United States Gymnastics or U.S. Olympic Committee, think of how many millions of dollars they make off the backs of these athletes, right? I mean, at the end of the day, that's where they're getting their money is based off their performance and sponsors, et cetera, et cetera. And then to turn around and and 
offer a settlement, which obviously like a settlement isn't enough, to offer a sum of $21 million to not look at any sort of reform is just such an insult to injury when these people dedicate their entire life, I mean, their childhood, their teenage years. I couldn't imagine doing this. And to be treated like that is just so disrespectful for another Mm -hmm. human or or group of humans. And it continues. Like, the Michigan State University trustees are are still obstructing an investigation into the university's handling of Nasser. It's like baffling to me. They are not cooperating with the Michigan Attorney General. And the investigation is suspended because the former Michigan State University interim president, John Engler, wouldn't agree to an interview. And so the trustees continue to keep 6,000 documents classified. Like, I don't even know what to say. It's crazy that they're defending a convicted serial sex offender. Yeah, child, child, which is the worst of the worst sex offender. And the thing that I want to say, too, about Michigan State, that this is not exclusive to one university. If you do, you have to understand that this sort of stuff, I know University of Michigan is going under it. It is probably right. way more common than we even know, and that the people who are on the what trustees, board of directors, or what have you for these universities, instead of owning up to anything, they're always just going to try to dig their heels in, which I think makes it a million times worse, but clearly they do not think so, and yeah. it's just disgusting. It's not just Ugh. these institutions can get away with this bullshit. I don't understand how. Yeah, yeah. USA Gymnastics and the US Olympic Committee and Michigan State, none of them have assumed accountability in the lease. They also have made no steps towards ensuring this would never happen again, which is reprehensible. And Simone Biles actually in a 60 Minutes interview recently said that USA Gymnastics 100% failed her and her teammates with regard to the Larry Nasser scandal. Oh, and then this is what Julia mentioned earlier that there's this Netflix documentary, Athlete A that highlights the USA Gymnastics and Larry Nasser scandal that I haven't watched yet. I don't know if you've watched it yet. Yeah, I watched it. Uh, I think la- it was during the pandemic when I watched it, probably last summer. And it was a really well done documentary, but I would definitely recommend it. Yeah. If you haven't seen it yet, it's really eye opening. It'll get you really frustrated and really fired up quickly. <laughs> but I think that's what, you know, we all need a dose of that yeah. to, to keep progress moving forward. And when this documentary was released, two of Britain's most decorated gymnasts, sisters Becky and Ellie Downey, released a joint statement just about gymnastics' toxic culture, calling it abusive and dangerous, and showing that what happened with USA Gymnastics is not an isolated incident, but like a pervasive issue in the sport. And so as a result, British Gymnastics has launched an independent investigation. And then this past May, the Australian Human Rights Commission released its report into abuse allegations within gymnastics in Australia for child abuse and neglect, misconduct, bullying, sexual harassment, and assault towards athletes. And this inquiry was launched at the request of Gymnastics Australia after a bunch of gymnasts in Australia, alongside others in the world, revealed their own traumatic experiences with sport after the release of the documentary Athlete A. And in fact, a Dutch inquiry determined that gymnastics in their country, how it is today, constituted legalized child abuse. So that's how intense it is. You know, yeah, I like- think the takeaway here is that there's a lot of room for growth and improvement, and it's dangerous to children and all of the athletes involved yep. sometimes. 
So one final pivot to a little bit more rosy a topic, we're going to talk about college gymnastics. So the NCAA introduced women's gymnastics as a championship sport in 1982 and as a Division I championship sport in 1982. There was briefly D2 gymnastics, but it was like discontinued in 1987. So there are only 62 D1 gymnastics programs in the country, and only seven schools have ever won national champs. Those include UCLA, Utah, Oklahoma, Alabama, Georgia, Michigan, and Florida. And there are some differences between elite gymnastics, so like the professional, the Olympic, international level, and then college gymnastics. So in the NCAA, the perfect 10 lives on. So the scoring at the elite level changed where a perfect 10 is no longer the highest score because they combine both a difficulty score and an execution score. So I think the score can go as as high as 15.223 in women's elite gymnastics. Also in the NCAA, routines, especially floor routines, are different from what you'd see in elite gymnastics because the college gymnasts have a little bit more creative freedom and expression. And so they'll actually like dance in their floor routines, literally moonwalk on the balance beam and things like that. That reminds me of um, Sticky. You know how that one, <laughs> have you yes. ever seen Sticky? And the one that she goes on the beam and listens to the song and does the dancing. I love that. Yes. Good yeah. movie. Good film. Oh, excellent film. And because the NCAA routines are usually lower difficulty, it means that there's less skills that go into a routine. So there's more room for like fun choreo. There's also less training time and more competition. So the NCAA caps training hours at 20, whereas elite gymnasts often work out as many as 40 hours a week. And college gymnasts have about 15 meets from January to April. It's also a team sport. It's like there's a big focus on the team total that, again, relieves some of that pressure on the individual. To the point that we made earlier about greater creative expression in college gymnastics, there's this one UCLA gymnast, Nia Dennis, who has really taken the world by storm because of her very fabulous floor routines. So I first encountered her sometime in like early 2020 when she did this Beyonce floor routine. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah, I'll put that video on the website because it is so much fun to watch. And then she comes back again this January and goes viral with a Black Excellence floor routine, which is like more Beyonce, some Missy Elliott, some Kendrick Lamar, Megan Thee Stallion. There's just something about watching her and other college gymnasts perform that you don't see at the elite level. And so I got to be honest, college gymnastics wasn't on my radar until I saw Nia Dennis's performances on social media. And since then, it's fun to watch. It's like so UCLA, much fun. Wasn't there another, there's another floor routine that there is Kate, Caitlin, I think was her name. Yeah. Caitlin Ohashi. And she had a really great floor routine, I think with UCLA. I, and yeah. it, like you're saying, it's just fun. It's fun. It's fun. And the UCLA gymnasts are some of the best to watch. Top of the top. Cream of top the of the top. Yeah. And because they have all of these meets, you know, you can try things out, try new music, all sorts of things like that. Right. With 15, you know, you, you have right. opportunities. More wiggle room. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, that kind of sums up our 
gymnastics episode. Always interesting to learn about the background. I love this. Mm -hmm. I love this podcast. Yeah, now you guys know that Larissa Latinina is the third. There was a Simone before Simone. I know. We don't even get to. We don't. And these are the stories again. You just aren't necessarily highlighted. So hey, they're highlighted here. We've got some more episodes coming down the pipeline. So keep an eye on all of our stuff. Check out the website. There'll be nice check out the the website. website. I'll make sure I throw some good content on there and uh from the history of the sports broad team we want to wish you a good evening a good afternoon and good night and play hard thanks for listening check out our website historyofthesportsbra.com for episode extras and more content on the wonderful world of women's sports.